Hello, and welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. This season, we are in Lent, and we are talking about justice all the way throughout this season. We're talking about a just Lent, learning to love what God loves. And Lent is a perfect time for self-examination, for reflection, for repentance and confession. And sometimes the topic feels really big, like there are many, many things that I could focus on confessing in this season. But uh, this time we decided to narrow it down and to really do some self-examination and some learning and confession and lamenting about the brokenness around um, injustice in our culture right now. And of course, we're in the middle of seeing a lot of injustice, especially racially motivated injustice right now, and it's disturbing. And I think this Lent gives us a chance to face into some of the difficulty of what's happening in our society right now, and also to consider how we as Christians can become people who are like God in that we love justice and we do justice. That's what God asks of us. And what are the practices associated with that? And how can we become not just people who have feelings about justice, but also people who practice justice and really get involved in those things that would make our society a society where people can actually flourish, where everyone can flourish, everyone can experience shalom. So today I'm sitting down with Reverend Soong Chan Ra. Soong Chan Ra is Robert B. Munger Professor of Evangelism at Fuller Theological Seminary and the author of many books, including Prophetic Lament. Ra is formerly the founding senior pastor of Cambridge Community Fellowship Church, a multi-ethnic church living out the values of racial reconciliation and social justice in the urban context. He has previously served on the boards of World Vision, Sojourners, and the Christian Community Development Association. I'm thrilled today to be in conversation with you, Soong Chan, and I have loved your book, Prophetic Lament, for such a long time. I've studied it. I've incorporated it into some of the things that I've written. It's so deep and so rich. I don't know how far we'll get with it all today, but I know it's partly why you are included in this book that we're working through in Lent, A Just Passion, a six-week mm. Lenten journey. And you have an offering, a meditation later on in the book. Uh, as we're mm -hmm. getting into Monday Thursday, as we're entering into the holy days of Holy Week, you have mm -hmm. a reflection in here from your book, Prophetic Lament. And so yes. today we want to talk about lament with you. And particularly, I'm interested eventually in talking with you about the fact that the resurrection is something that I think different cultures react and respond to in different ways. And in your book, Prophetic mm -hmm. Lament, I thought that one of the most striking things that you talked about was how the white church often approaches the resurrection and uses it in ways that are triumphalistic. And so I want to talk about that as we go, and I want to yes. talk about the practice of lament. And as we begin, let's have you read one of our scriptures from the lectionary for this week sure. of Lent, uh, for the sixth week of Lent. And we're reading the psalm today and would love to have you read Psalm 31. 9 through 16. Sure. Psalm 31. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. 
for I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Mm. Amen. Mm -hmm. The word of the Lord for the Lenten season. Well, that is a quintessential lament psalm, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) It does all that a lament psalm typically does, right? It starts with a distress, and somewhere along the way, it turns a corner to hope. Hallelujah! (laughs) Yes, Um, uh, that's what's called a a classic kind of individual lament in particular. Uh, And you see this all over the psalms. Mm-hmm. where it begins with an address to God, crying out to God. Yeah. And then it goes through the actual lament, which is, this is the suffering that I'm enduring right now. And then oftentimes, not always though, but oftentimes it will close with a plea to God, which yeah. is the expression of hope. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that God delivers at that moment, but that the person who is crying out in lament is able to actually speak to God and and that becomes the the source of hope, yes. the the ability to cry out to God. That's right, and some level of faith that you're crying out to a God who can actually do something, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's where the hope is. Well, I do want to talk a little bit more about the practice of lament, but first of all, would you connect for us and for our listeners the practice of lament with the issue of justice? How is lament connected with the issue, the practice of justice? Because I know it's it's really at the heart of our justice work is the ability to lament what is wrong in our world and to direct our, our prayers to God and even in the context of what's deeply, deeply wrong. That's right. And the origin for me in exploring lament was uh, when I was a pastor. I was a pastor in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, uh, of course, is home to two very prestigious universities, mm-hmm. MIT and, and Harvard. And uh, as I was ministering to this population, realizing that m- almost all of them had never failed at anything. They'd always been victorious and triumphant. They yes. got straight A's and they were all class presidents and they all got perfect scores in their SATs. And so when that population was trying to minister to the urban and inner city communities that had oftentimes experienced a very different set of experiences, there was a disconnect. There was a disconnect between those who had experienced victory and triumph for almost all of their lives with those who had suffered most of their lives. And so I, I thought it was important to introduce the concept of lament to this population. And I've defined lament simply as the appropriate response to the reality of pain and suffering in the world. And the appropriate response can be liturgical, ecclesial, spiritual, emotional. Uh, There's a lot of different variations of that. But it is an appropriate response. But the second part is also important in that there is the reality of suffering and pain in the world. Mm -hmm. So those two together are an important part of the pursuit of justice because we would not pursue justice if we don't recognize injustice. If we don't recognize the reality of pain and suffering in the world, what's our motivation to fix that brokenness in the world if, if if we think there is no brokenness in the world? So lament becomes the bridge, the hinge that helps us to recognize first, yeah, there is pain, suffering, injustice in the world, and we need to bring God's justice to that injustice. And then the appropriate response is not we're going to fix it, but we're going to actually lament alongside God and his people uh, to cry out to God for that justice. Yeah. 
So it's interesting that in this uh, episode, we are moving into Holy Week, um, the highest holy days of our Christian year, and certainly the time when Jesus suffered, you know, for our sakes. And, you know, the lament psalms, some of them actually have words that Jesus used in his own lamenting in the New Testament. Yeah. And so how do you connect Lent with Holy Week, you know, the week that Jesus lived through and that we walk through with Jesus? How do you see Lament together with uh, Holy Week? Well, I've, I've been to a lot of churches in my years as a pastor and as a professor, and especially kind of the Easter weekend and and Holy Week. One of the things that has always frustrated me is I really do believe in celebrating and jumping up and down and and really enjoying the, the, the victory and triumph of Easter Sunday morning, the Resurrection Sunday. But I also feel like in order to get to Resurrection Sunday, you need the days that lead up to Resurrection mm. Sunday. Yeah. Because what are you celebrating? It's mm-hmm. just celebrating victory? No, you're mm-hmm. celebrating victory over death, over yeah. pain, over suffering. It's always been a pet peeve of mine that on Good Friday, People end Good Friday services with a celebratory song. Uh, <laughs> that's not the way that it's actually supposed to work. No. Uh, you know, you don't say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, when Jesus has died and he's still in the tomb. Yeah. And so some of us, I think, especially in the West, where we want that feel-good experience of being in church. We want our our lifestyles to be affirmed. We want our values of victory and triumph and success to be affirmed. We're looking for that on, in almost every aspect of our worship life. And so we want to get to Easter Sunday without going through Good Friday. We want to get to the triumph and victory of Resurrection Sunday without recognizing the pain and suffering that leads up to the cross on Friday. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I think it's just the balance of the, the triumph of the resurrection doesn't make sense without the pain of the cross. Yeah. And for those of us who want to seek justice— and uh, seek the will of God in in the world and in our lives, we've got to get through the pain and suffering before we jump to the mm-hmm. triumph and celebration. Yeah. And so I think Holy Week is an incredible time of that kind of reflection, yeah. not just jumping to the victory, but working through what it means to get to that victory. So, you know, something like foot washing and Monday Thursday, what an expression of humility and servanthood that leads to the cross. Mm-hmm. That act of, of washing each other's feet, especially Jesus washing our feet, that's an incredibly deep, profound, humble act that you need in order to get to the cross of Friday, and you need that in order to get to the celebration on Sunday. Yeah. Why is it so hard for us in the church to stick with the lament moment? And like you're talking about how we, even on Good Friday, rush through and have a celebratory song at the end. Yes, what is yes. What is it about us that makes it so hard for us to stay with lament in the Christian church? Well, it's cultural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of that is cultural. So I'm, I'm a Korean-American. I mm-hmm. grew up a part of my life in Korea until I was about six years old. And also I was kind of affected and grown up in Korean-American culture. And part of that immigrant culture and part of my kind of Korean background, there's a lot of suffering narratives within my cultural background. Korea as a nation had repeatedly been conquered. Uh, It's this tiny little peninsula. The Japanese were conquered and then the Chinese were conquered and then the U.S. were conquered. And then it just went back and forth for centuries and centuries. So there's a part of the culture uh, within my community that reflects on suffering. And if you listen to some of the old 
Korean folk songs, there's a lot of lament there. Actually, James Cohn says that it sounds like the blues of mm-hmm. American culture, kind of a, a lament from Korea that parallels the lament of the African-American community that comes out in the blues. Mm-hmm. And so for me, uh, lament has been a part of my upbringing. Yeah. I grew up in a single-parent home, mm-hmm. and we grew up in a poor neighborhood in uh, Baltimore inner city. So that experience led our family to places of lament, of isolation, of loneliness uh, that comes out of the immigrant experience, that comes out of poverty, that comes out of my background as a Korean. And I found that that personal experience and being shaped by my culture and my upbringing came into conflict with a lot of the triumphalistic narratives of American society. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., you're always supposed to win. (laughs) <laughs> you know, when I think back to sporting events, mm-hmm. we always remember the winners, but we never forget the, the losers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who wins this award, but not the runners up? Yeah. Uh, we celebrate victory. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm saying that there's an overemphasis at winning to such an extent that we think winning at all costs or winning all the time is the end goal or is the, is what we should all aspire for. And what that does is it takes away the power of the suffering that leads up to that victory. And so for me as a, as a Korean American, I can see the value of both. I can see the value of what it means to live through suffering and actually say God was in the midst of that suffering mm-hmm. and also to recognize the midst of uh, God is in the midst of our triumph and victory as well. But I think in the U.S., especially our cultural norms of triumph and victory and winning all the time, we've kind of lost the balance of the two, which is why we overemphasize triumph and victory and we underemphasize lament. And I write about this and how our worship life is really reflective of that imbalance as well. Yeah. What is the role of suffering in the spiritual life? I think that's such an important question as we enter into Holy Week, because we know that Jesus Jesus says of himself, did not the Messiah have to suffer, right? Yes. In Luke 24, did not the Messiah have to suffer? So Jesus was perfect, and yet the scriptures tell us that he had to suffer, and also yes. that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Can you talk yes. to us a little bit about the role of suffering in the spiritual life as we think about entering into this Holy Week? Well, I think about, you know, I teach evangelism, mm-hmm. and one of the key things to me about evangelism is that evangelism cannot be separated from discipleship. Mm-hmm. And discipleship, of course, a big part of discipleship is formation and how we are formed in our spiritual lives. Yeah. And if you look at the way that uh, Jesus talks about, for lack of a better term, evangelism, he doesn't quite use that language in uh, in the New mm-hmm. Testament. But if when Jesus talks about evangelism, he talks about discipleship. Because yeah. what does he say evangelism is? Take up your cross and follow me as I take mm-hmm. my, I take up the cross. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty profound statement about the Christian walk. It's not one where you're dancing in the streets. It's one where you're carrying a, a symbol of execution, death, and suffering and pain. Mm-hmm. And that is what you are bearing as you are following Jesus. As Jesus suffers, you suffer alongside. As Jesus leads us in suffering, we follow in that suffering. So formation for me is the moments of victory and triumph where you know that God is on your side and God will see you through the toughest of situations, but also recognizing that God is found in the places of pain as well. Uh, I love the psalm that says, wherever I go, you are there. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. You can go to the heights, which we love to go to the heights and Mm -hmm. God is there and jumps up and down for joy that we're there with him. But it also says we go to the depths 
and and he is there. Yeah. Um, and part of our Christian walk and the maybe some of the lukewarmness of our Christian walk now is that we only seem to see God in the heights and we fail to see God in the depths. Mm-hmm. And lament is the recognition of God in the depths. Mm-hmm. And so for us as Christians, that allows us to live every moment of our lives in formation, every moment of our lives, because not all of our moments in our lives are going to be triumphant victory. Much of our lives are actually going to be places of anxiety, depression, uh, fear, um, all the things that make up, I don't know, 90% of our lives. And uh, we've kind of flipped that equation where 90% of our lives we wish were celebration, when really 90% of our lives are oftentimes suffering and, and pain. And so lament allows us a way to express formation and seeking out of God, even in that pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. So sticking with the language of formation, what does suffering form in us? (laughs) Well, I think Lamentations is a really interesting case study of this. Mm. Because what happens in the book of Lamentations is that you have a people that have suffered incredibly, profoundly. Mm -hmm. And out of that suffering, they are able to articulate to God what they're experiencing in their pain and suffering. So if you look at the book of Lamentations, it starts off more of a description of their pain. It starts off with, in fact, kind of the the prophet narrator, in all likelihood, Jeremiah, pointing out, hey, the women over there are suffering, the widows are suffering, the orphans are suffering. And they kind of raise up their voices and say, this is what our pain is. But then if at the end of the, the book, in chapter 5, they actually begin to articulate more of a prayer. So that's the incredible shift in the book of Lamentations. It starts off as just this gut-wrenching cry of like, we can't do anything but just tell tell you about our suffering. It's it's groaning too, too deep for words. It's not even an, a clearly articulated one in that they're just kind of blurting out their suffering in some ways. But by the end of that book, after all of that is being processed and their spirituality is being deepened and formed by the process of their lament, by chapter five, it is actually a much more organized, much more Mm. structured, much more clear and a direct address to God. Whereas in the first four chapters, it's kind of a scattershot of this is what I'm feeling. We don't even know if they're talking to God. But Mm -hmm. by the end of that lament story, at the end of that chapter, chapter five, you actually have the people of God able to cry out to God. And that's the place of hope, that they no longer are just blurting out their suffering, but actually able to direct that suffering towards God. That's formation for me. The ability to not just articulate pain, but to be able to say, I trust in a God who is able to take care of my pain. Even if that pain is not relieved at that moment, which which it isn't in Lamentations, the process of Lamentation is that they get to chapter 5, and they're able to seek out God. And that's a very formational piece of the book. Yes, yes. And I'm thinking, you know, the very structure of lament pulls you and calls you towards the turning of the corner, you know, to express faith and trust in God and the one who is overall. And that whether you actually feel it emotionally, the turning of the practice of lament towards trust and hope calls you forward spiritually out of just your own mere cathartic expression, right? Yes. So it's the both and. It shapes it uh, in a new direction almost. And that's the beauty of, of the of the scriptures, that there's always that balance mm-hmm. of the lament that is so gut-wrenching and so deep when it turns towards God, yes. not towards ourselves, not towards the ground, 
not towards the generic mm. heavens. But when yes. it turns towards God, that shows a both a cognitive and emotional and spiritual turn. Mm-hmm. You have developed a a deep sense, a profound sense of of understanding who God is, that you can come to a point where you can cry out to God directly and ask for his help. Mm-hmm. That's some deep formation right there. Yeah. Because for me, as a young Christian, I just yelled at God. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just cried out to God and, yeah. oh, look at my suffering. But when then I cried out to God to say, God, you are the author and perfecter of my faith. You are the one that I can cry out to, not just out of a depth of pain, but understanding that my cries will be heard. Maybe not at that exact moment, but my cries will be heard. There's a maturity there. There's a a, a depth of spirituality there. And I think that kind of trust in God, the ability to just kind of rend your heart and and be completely raw before God, that kind of maturity is is an important, uh, essential part of our formation. The other thing that's, that I hear, you know, as a subtext to this is that it's very intimate. I mean, mm. what you're describing in terms of crying out to God with pain and with despair, that's a really intimate thing to do. Like, you don't share like that with people that you don't know very well and don't feel very close to. It's an act of trust to even say, I believe God's going to care about me in this place. I think God can handle it. I mean, it yeah. actually moves a relationship forward when you can be raw and vulnerable and talk about the deepest distresses of your life. So it strikes me that lament is actually a step into further intimacy with God, yeah. which is in itself very formational. Yes. I mean, the the characteristics of God is that he's both transcendent and imminent, mm-hmm. as in he is different from us. He is above us. He's beyond us. But he's also very present. And yeah. lament is kind of a both and. It's mm-hmm. recognizing God's eminence, God's closeness, presence, that he is not far from our suffering. I mean, the ultimate act of God's lament over humanity is the person of Jesus. That's in a, a beautiful expression of lament in that Jesus suffers on our behalf. And so the imminence of God, the, the, the closeness of God, means that God is right there in the midst of our suffering. Lament, the turn of lament is recognizing the transcendence of God as well, that God is there in the midst of our suffering, but because he is greater than us, he is able to move us out of our suffering. Yeah. But again, it's that both and mm-hmm. piece of it, recognizing the presence of God in our lament and the, uh, the transcendence of God in our victory and in our triumph. Mm-hmm. So that's, I feel like that's some of the personal aspects of lament, uh, mm-hmm. what it does w- within us formationally and how it moves our intimacy with God along and moves it forward. Now I want to talk about sort of the challenging edge yes. of lament. Um, and yes. you talk about, you know, the title of your book is Prophetic Lament yeah. and that one of the final things that happens in lament is that you are declaring to the world that something is wrong, uh, yes. that there's a sharper edge to it. You're saying to the world, this is not right. This is not how God intends it to be. And in that way, lament is prophetic. I mean, I get chills even talking about that because it's it's so exciting to think that lament is is all that we just said. Mm-hmm. And it also has this very prophetic edge. It's yes. always going to challenge. And so let's talk about the prophetic nature of lament for a moment and how you yes. see that and how you've written about it. Well, the genre of lament has many subgenres. And so one of the places that there is two subgenres is individual lament and corporate lament. 
Now, what you get in, in Lamentations and in the book of Jeremiah, by the way, is a both and. And oftentimes, the individual lament that we think Jeremiah is offering is actually a corporate lament on behalf of his people. So there are places in the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah would say, we have sinned, O God, or I have sinned, O God, when in actuality, Jeremiah is not, has not sinned. In fact, he's the one faithful person in all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, and he has been faithful to God's word, and yet he confesses and he professes, I have sinned and we have sinned. So that link between individual lament and corporate lament is a very important one. Because in a hyper-individualistic society like Western culture and U.S. society, Mm -hmm. we think everything should be focused on just the individual formation Mm -hmm. or individual transformation or individual salvation. We forget that God is not just the God of the individual, but he is also God of society, God of the world. That's why in John 3.16, one of our most favorite verses, it says, God so loved the world. And now again, I was a, I'm a former youth pastor, so I remember using that verse in youth retreat, saying, God loves Johnny, and God loves Jane, and God loves mm-hmm. Mary. And that's all true, but it's not what the verse is actually saying. The Hebrew, uh, the Greek word there is cosmos, which means God loves the world. He loves the individuals in the world, of course, but there's a social, cultural, larger structural implication of God's love, not just to the individual, but also to the world. And that's where it shifts from... We do care. We're not ignoring the need for individuals to come to saving faith. That's not something we ignore or put aside. But we're also saying that God's concern and the lament he longs to hear is not just lament over individual sin, but lament over brokenness in the world, in the cosmos, in the, the systems and structures of our world. And so what lament can do is it can turn the individual towards the source of our healing, but it can also turn our society and our world towards the source of our healing. And because it recognizes, again, going back to that definition of lament, it recognizes the reality of pain, suffering, and struggle that is in the world. And so if we are able to get a realistic snapshot of the brokenness that is in the world, the brokenness that leads to poverty, the brokenness that leads to human trafficking, the brokenness that leads to racism, the brokenness that leads to sexism. This is all part of the brokenness of our society. And lament is the truth-telling about that brokenness and then the recognition that we need to turn to God for that lament. Yeah. Well, and and with that word love, I want to introduce another word, and that is that if God so loves the world, there's this reality that God has desires for the world. Exactly. God has a way that God envisions the world working, you know? Yes, exactly. And there's specificity to God's desire for us and to God's desire for the world. And so when we lament, we're saying this world is not how God desires it, you know? Exactly. God had a different idea for how the world might be. Yeah. And that's where the Hebrew word shalom, and I'm sure your listeners are very well aware of that concept Mm -hmm. of shalom, that shalom is translated into the English is oftentimes used in a negative connotation, I mean, in a strange way, because you use the word peace as the definition of shalom. But peace in Western culture, in English, uh, U.S. English, is oftentimes defined as the absence of war or absence mm-hmm. of conflict. conflict but in yeah. the Hebrew, it's actually a little bit different connotation. Shalom in the Hebrew is really more about the presence of the wholeness and fullness of God. Yeah. It's not the absence of something, mm-hmm. it's the fullness of something. And so when we talk about shalom as... Uh, expressed in our society, it's not we're getting rid of all our opposition or we're getting rid of all the things that make us uncomfortable. 
It is actually the fullness of God's presence. And that includes lament because lament and victory actually have to go together. Lament is a part of God's way of interacting with us. So if we leave that out, we're not getting the shalom of God. We're simply getting the victory and triumph, which is really only half the story. Lament allows us to experience the fullness of shalom. So that's why if I can get, you know, very specific here, that's why it's so disquieting and so uh, disturbing, especially for me as an academic and as an historian, to say, why are we not teaching the fullness of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of history? That there is things in our nation's history, there are things in our world's history that has to be taught, even if it leads us into lament. They're not part of the triumphalistic narrative. They're part of the suffering pain narrative. And so there are times we need to learn the story of the African-American community, even though that story is filled with lament, filled with brokenness, filled with Mm -hmm. pain. Slavery is not a fun moment in U.S. history. but We have Mm -hmm. to teach it. In the church, I would say even more so, because out of that came the African-American church, an important part of our current history in the U.S. Out of that came the strive and drive for equality and and a greater sense of being community with one another. Again, very, very, very very biblical values. And so before we get to the triumph and victory and just sit there, we've got to go as a community, as a church, we've got to go through the stories of suffering. And that includes the stories of the Native American communities, the African American communities, stories of Japanese internment, stories of immigration. Those are all stories of suffering that we need to know in order to enter deeper into lament. Yes. Let's talk about American culture specifically for a moment, because you do really go there, you know, yeah. at the end of your book. <laughs> and and you, I'm, I'm going to just read a little quote, and I'd love to really discuss this with you. Obviously, injustice and trauma and violence has surfaced all the way throughout history in every way possible. Here, you're talking about the Rwanda genocide, mm. and that the deepest tragedy, you say, of the Rwandan genocide, well, actually, you're quoting someone else, but yes. that Christianity did not seem to make any difference. Yes. That Rwandans performed a script that had shaped them more deeply than the biblical story had. That behind the silences of genocide, the Hutus and the Tutsis alike were shaped by a story that held their imaginations captive. And so you talk about cultural captivity and uh, blind spots that are caused by swimming too deeply in society's cultural values. And that lament, you know, offers a radically different set of practices that gesture towards a new reality. Can we talk about cultural captivity as it expresses itself right now and maybe even talk about triumphalism and white Christian nationalism? I mean, these are uncomfortable topics, but we really need to go there. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, Here we are, deep there. end of the pool. Let's swim. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We're no longer in the shallow end. So let's. No, we're not. Let's move forward. Yeah. So, I, in my, my first book, uh, Next Evangelicalism, I write about cultural captivity in more detail. Mm-hmm. And I identify three areas that Western Christianity, in particular, is captive more to Western culture than it is to the scripture. The way I just define captivity is that when we get our values and our our direction from the cultural values rather than from the scriptures themselves. So I point out things like individualism, where the Bible is not an individualistic book, Mm -hmm. but in the West, our Christianity is Mm hyper-individualistic. Consumerism, 
where the Bible is not talking about materialism as a value, but in many of our churches in the West, materialism consumers is considered a value. Talk about racism as a cultural value that stands against the, the values of Scripture. And I would add to that now the value of exceptionalism and triumphalism. Yes. And how that is actually very culturally driven. Because that exceptionalism and triumphalism is not based upon our identity in Christ, Oftentimes, that exceptionalism and triumphalism is based upon an American identity, and even more specifically, a white American Christian identity. And so in our culture, you see expressions of this, where folks who identify themselves as Christians, but their exceptionalism and triumphalism is wrapped up not in their Christian identity, but in their white American Christian identity. So that is it more important that they're Christian or they're American? Is it more important that they're Christian or white? Sometimes it's hard to tell based upon the rhetoric. The real issue then is this sense of exceptionalism and triumphalism that does not come from Scripture itself. There is not a single word in the Bible that says America is an exceptional nation. Not a single word. There's not a single word in the Bible that says white Americans are the center of of Christianity. Not a single word. So these are cultural values that have seeped into the church that we kind of take for granted. And so lament disrupts that assumption. These assumptions that are culturally driven, societally driven, maybe even politically driven, the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea of white American Christians should be the center of Christianity in the world or in the U.S., those ideas, those ideologies, those values are not what the scripture points to. And so lament interrupts that triumphalistic narrative to say, actually, no, let's look at the brokenness in our society. Actually, no, let's look at the history of oppression. Let's look at the history of, of slavery and genocide and slave and treatment of immigrants and aliens among us. Those are clearly not biblical values. So we can't claim this exceptionalism, triumphalism as a nation. And so lament interrupts that narrative mm-hmm. of exceptionalism. And that's where many folks are chafing at lament. Many folks are scared about truth-telling, about our history, about African-American history, about Native American story, about the Japanese internment. People don't want to talk about that because it interrupts the narrative of exceptionalism and triumphalism. Right, right. Well, I mean, when you think about the themes of Lent and the fact that it is a time of self-examination, repentance, and confession— My prayer and my hope would be that this conversation would actually awaken an opportunity for us to repent on the corporate collective level, as well as whatever our individual awarenesses uh, might be. And there, and there are many. I mean, I, you know, Lent is a time when we're very aware of our own personal sinfulness, but Mm -hmm. I also hope that through this conversation in particular, that we have a sense of our collective sins and might be willing to confess that in in some appropriate ways. I actually hope some people heard some new words today that they hadn't heard (laughs) before and are wrestling with the meanings of triumphalism and exceptionalism. I wouldn't even mind if we made a few people mad, you know, in in this conversation. (laughs) That would actually be a success in this conversation because it would mean that maybe we're facing something that's uncomfortable and hard for us to face. Yeah. Well, as we conclude, you know, we are framing this season as being an opportunity to learn to love what God loves, but mm. not just in a personal way, but also to become justice leaders. And we want to end each 
one of our episodes with an encouragement from our guest about what you would see as a practice for someone who wants to be a justice leader, not just someone who wants to stay intimate and personal and just feel bad about stuff, you know, but in the book of Micah, what does the Lord require of you? It doesn't, it's not just to love justice. It's actually to do justice, right? Yes, exactly. So what practice might you offer up or some way of working with lament that's specific to people who want to be leaders in this area? And also, even as we approach Holy Week, how can we enter into Holy Week in a way that incorporates this important practice of lament into our week? That's a great question. I'll give two personal examples as a snapshot of this. The first is I lost my mom about uh, two years ago, Mm -hmm. and uh, she was 88, and she had been a prayer warrior her entire life. But in the eyes of the world, uh, people saw her as less than as kind of the the women in Lamentations who've lost a lot and who had no kind of power and authority or position in the world. Uh, she was a single mom. Uh, we lived in a poor neighborhood in, in Baltimore. Uh, we were on food stamps. Uh, she worked two jobs every every day for six days a week. But because she was an immigrant with limited language skills, she was kind of cast into a particular light. She was a welfare queen because she took help from the government. She was an immigrant mom, single mom. So there was kind of a social status that she lacked because of her, her, her state in life. But there was no stronger spiritual warrior than my mom. Mm. I share quite often about uh, the condition of my mom's knees. Uh, she showed me in her 60s, the condition of her knees. And mm. we have one kneecap on each knee. Uh, she had five kneecaps on each knee mm. because she knelt before God for 40 years in a row for several decades praying on a hard wooden floor. And so her kneecaps cracked open. And so when she knelt in her 60s on the hard wooden floor, her kneecaps formed the shape of the floor. And that would allow her to pray on her knees for even longer. But that's those are the stories that aren't recognized. The lament of a single mom, an immigrant immigrant mother, who was working multiple jobs to keep her family together in an in a, in a inner city neighborhood. Those are the stories that we don't listen to because they don't fit our stories of triumph and victory. And I would love for the church to hear more of those stories, mm-hmm. not the stories just of those who was the hotshot 29-year-old pastor that planted a megachurch, but mm-hmm. the stories of the praying mothers and grandmothers who really make the church work, who yeah. really, really make the church happen because of their faithful prayers to God. Listening to other voices and hearing the lament of those outside of your immediate community. The other example for me was when I was... Um, I moved out to California a couple of years ago to start a new position at Fuller. But for five years prior to that, I was uh, on the faculty at North Park, and we had an outreach to Stateville Correctional Center, which is a max security prison outside of Chicago. And I just remember being in those classrooms with uh, incarcerated students and just receiving their grace towards me as someone who, you know, in the eyes of the world might have some, you know, credentials. I've got doctorates and and, uh, Ivy League school degrees and all that stuff. I'm a tenured professor, I've written books, and I'm walking into there with that kind of arrogance to think that I have something to teach life lessons to these brothers who have experienced everything in life. And I'm walking in there with my Ivy League degrees thinking, oh, I've got the answers for you. And they were extraordinarily gracious to me And when I was going through some difficulties, it was those incarcerated brothers who actually came alongside, literally held me as I cried, and literally walked alongside me spiritually and literally just kind of being there for me in my moments of distress, my mom's passing, struggles in the family. And it was those incarcerated brothers 
who society would say they 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 locked up, you know, toss away the key, lock them up forever. But these were the very brothers that walked alongside me. That mutual lament, the lament of my my mom on her knees for decades, the lament of my incarcerated brothers who came alongside me during my places of struggle, those are the places that our faith and our Christian community needs to go deeper. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to go to another conference with another hotshot pastor telling me what to do to grow my church. I'm, yeah. I'm just done with that. Yeah, I I hear you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I do, yeah. If I can sit in a room and pray with my incarcerated brothers who have been through everything in life, mm-hmm. and yet they still cry out to God, man, my my my, my faith is deepened. Mm-hmm. My My lament goes deeper. Their lament for me goes deeper. So I would say look for those places where you're not just hearing the affirmation of your triumph, but look for those places where lament can be introduced by friends who are different from you, by communities that have a different state in life. Those are the spaces that I think we should seek out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's beautiful because I'm reminded of Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is crying out to God and the disciples fall asleep to his pain. And there's something about this Holy Week where we know we're being invited to stay present to Jesus' pain versus falling asleep when he said, could you not stay awake with me for one hour? And I wonder if there's an invitation, too, to also stay awake to the pain of the world and not try to medicate it or, you know, somehow turn away from it, but to stay present and to allow ourselves to walk into the emotion of it and the pain of it and to feel it for ourselves. Because in doing that, I believe that we are actually entering into the heart of God, who, as you said so beautifully, also laments, you know, what is broken in our world. And so we're entering in to the love of God as a loving God laments a world that's not exactly as he had created it to be. And someday it will be, we believe, as Amen. Christians. But um, in this moment, we're called to lament and be present uh, to the pain Amen. and to the love of a God who loves us too much to have any of his children not experience his shalom. Amen. So friends, our invitation this week now is to walk into Holy Week and rather than rushing to Easter Sunday in a triumphalistic sort of way, I'm hoping that we can move slower and stay within each and every movement of Holy Week. I know that in the Protestant tradition, we do tend to rush. In other traditions, there is more of an emphasis on the days preceding the resurrection. So for some of us in the Protestant tradition, it's going to be a stretch. But, you know, Holy Week has many moves in it that help us to make sense of suffering, that help us to walk with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to be like Jesus, even in the midst of great suffering. And so we have many traditions around Holy Week. In the Anglican tradition, in the Catholic tradition, it will begin on Wednesday, actually, with tenebrae. And tenebrae uh, means darkness or shadow. And so a tenebrae service actually is a, a service that acknowledges the darkness, where we acknowledge the fact that we are going to be entering into a dark time and waiting. And so for some, that's also a moment when we begin to enter into a spirit of repentance, self-examination, self-knowledge, and repentance. 
and begin and determine to walk with Jesus through these darkest days. Then on Thursday, Maundy Thursday, Maundy Thursday is a very communal emphasis because we focus on Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples and the moment when he, knowing that he was going to be killed, he actually gets down on the floor and washes his disciples' feet. And there's this beautiful phrase, having loved his own until the end. And so he serves them on that night. He gives them uh, the, the practice of communion. So as he's leaving, they have the Last Supper where the practice of communion is instituted, and then he washes their feet. And that service is also a service that is commemorated within some of the more formal church traditions where there's a Maundy Thursday service and we do foot washing. And then there's Good Friday where we commemorate Jesus' journey to the cross. And here in the Transforming Center, many, many years, we have actually at midday on Good Friday prayed the Stations of the Cross. We're not doing it that way this year, but uh, Good Friday is a really important day to actually walk it out with Jesus. And noon, the hours between noon and three are really significant for us because by three o'clock, Jesus is already on the cross and crying out. And starting at noon, we actually follow Jesus' steps of the Stations of the Cross, asking Jesus to teach us and to show us how to walk with him in that place of deep suffering. Then Holy Saturday is uh, meant to be a quiet day, a day when we are in touch with the waiting aspects of the spiritual life. Burial actually signifies waiting when something is at work, but we don't know what God is actually doing in that waiting time. Biblically speaking, there is the harrowing of hell. This is when we believe that Jesus went down to the depths. Um, there are, you know, there are lots of teachings and perspectives around that, but we know that for Jesus, it was perhaps a bit of an active time. There were things that he was doing to overcome death. And then finally on resurrection morning, then we begin to celebrate the resurrection. And so these are the highest holy days of the church. And this invitation to walk with Jesus through the events of Holy Week is a challenging one because it is an invitation to not avoid and to move into triumphalism, but to actually stay right with every single moment of Jesus' suffering, starting on Sunday with Palm Sunday, but then deepening into these other days of Holy Week. I believe that walking with Jesus through Holy Week is an act of discipleship. It's an act of love and friendship with Christ. It is the gift of staying present with him, during the hardest and most unnerving parts of his journey. And we do this out of friendship, awake and alert, staying with Jesus in these difficult days. But it is also an act of discipleship where we learn some things by following Jesus in these days through suffering and pain that are very different than the things that we learn during and through and in the resurrection. So I pray that we'll be able to stay faithful to this week and that we will learn from the things that Jesus suffered and maybe in some small way have a sense of participating with Jesus in his suffering even as we are in touch with our own suffering. So let me send you into these holy days with this traditional prayer from the Book of Common Prayer and let's hear it as an invitation to walk with Jesus through Holy Week. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And may you experience the nearness of God during this holy week. Thank you.